hello. 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 How's it going? Good. Pretty good. Um, Sid, I see you over there playing with a rubber band, and I once saw that rubber band wrapped around some dirty money, so I think that you might be working for the cartels. You never can tell. Probably should just shoot her. Are you going to try and choke me out? Maybe after the podcast. i got things to do first. Yeah, we'll get this stuff done and then I'll take care of business. <laughs> <laughs> Plot twist. Sid is a cartel hitman. Hit woman? Is hitman a gender neutral word, do you think? Can a woman be a hitman? I'm, I'm sure. So. I think yeah. it's gender neutral. But is Sicario gender neutral? It's actually not. Oh, I don't know. Mm. I mean, it shouldn't be if it follows the rules of like every other noun. But It's true. But it sounds really cool. I know. I wouldn't. I'd be like. So would it be Sicaria? Yeah, I don't know that I want. Like calling somebody check. like, ooh, she's a Sicaria. Like that sounds weird. That sounds like a drink or something. Yeah, Sicario sounds way cooler. Yeah, like it sounds like sangria. um hello and welcome to episode whatever 20 is this 20 i think it is this This is is 20 this is episode 20 well hello and welcome to episode 20 of we watch movies and then talk about them the only podcast on the internet where we watch a movie and then talk about it we being me my name is andrew westensko i am the host of this year podcast joined at my right hand by becca and further at my right hand today by Sid. Hi. We are not sitting in a circle today. No. No, everything's messed up. We're in a weird line. Yes. This whole gosh darn room is just destroyed. Yeah. Except for our poster wall. We have a poster wall. That now. looks great. Yeah, we spent too much money and bought some big, huge, giant posters. Of all of our favorite movies. Well, three. Uh, each of our favorite movies. Yes. And my second favorite, uh, potentially second favorite, I don't know. I already owned a poster for the Tree of Life, so I got a Blade Runner poster. I was going to (laughs) say, guess which poster you got. Blade Runner 2049. (laughs) Guess what, folks? If you go back and listen to our episode about the Grand Budapest Hotel, that's probably the first episode so far that we don't mention either Blade Runner 2049 or There Will Be Blood. Crazy. Pretty crazy. So we got to make up for it today. We're going to mention We're actually going to mention it probably a lot because. Oh, yeah, that's very true. (laughs) Um, Today, we're going to be talking about Sicario, written by Taylor Sheridan, directed by none other than Denis Villeneuve. And I'm sure that somebody out there who speaks French-Canadian is going to tell me that I'm I'm pronouncing his name wrong, but I refuse to say Villeneuve, because that sounds really wrong, and I'm sure it is wrong. So, Denis Villeneuve it is. All right. I don't know how to say it any better. (laughs) So, um, Sicario, we're going to talk about it today. Who's excited? So excited. Yes, I'm ready. So I'm pretty <laughs> freaking stoked, folks. All right. Um, this movie came out in 2015, which is in the five-year window that we give for spoilers. So just so you know, this will be full and completely full of all and any spoilers of the movie Sicario, directed by Denis Villeneuve, written by Taylor Sheridan, starring Emily Blunt, Benicio Del Toro, Josh Brolin, Daniel Kaluuya, um, and some other people, but they have smaller roles. So, um, yeah. So, three, two, one, five, four, twelve, eleven, six. We are going into spoiler territory. 
Great counting. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, if you didn't know, Sicario is the story of, according to IMDb, an idealistic FBI agent is enlisted by a government task force to aid in the escalating war against drugs at the border area between the U.S. and Mexico. That's the IMDb summary. Basically, Emily Blunt is a goody-goody two-shoes and gets brought into a... Uh, she gets brought in by Josh Brolin, who is a uh, doesn't-play-by-the-rules bad cop trying to take down the Mexican cartels. And uh, Benicio Del Toro is his uh, go-and-do-stuff dude. And things happen, and stuff escalates, and we question the morality of our motives. Is that a pretty good summary? That is a pretty good summary. So, um, I'm very excited to talk about this movie, actually, because I've been trying to get Becca to watch this movie forever. Um, Little background, Denis Villeneuve um, has, at this point, five English films. Uh, He's got a couple of French ones that I've heard are really good, but I haven't watched them yet. Um, So, Prisoners, Enemy, Sicario, Arrival, and Blade Runner 2049. And Becca really didn't want to watch Sicario, just not interested in it. And then I reminded her that Denis Villeneuve wrote it or directed it. And then I told her that Taylor Sheridan wrote it, which is the guy that wrote Hell or High Water, which she really likes. And then she wanted to watch it. This is all true. That's basically how the story went. <laughs> yep. So um, when you make a commercial for a movie, just put in there who made it. And smart people will want to watch it if those people make good movies. Yeah, sure. So. We're going to start out our discussion today of Sicario, the action crime drama film from 2015, with some hot takes. Don't burn yourself on those hot takes, guys. (laughs) Becca. All right. Well, I am still not quite sure what I think about this film. I think it's really good. But I still feel like I'm trying to kind of digest it and like I don't totally understand what all happened because it just all happened. Um, But I do think there were a lot of really, really good things about it. Specifically, the cinematography was just amazing. Uh, courtesy of Roger Deakins. Like I was just in awe the whole time. And there were a few scenes where there's just like it would focus on like the dust particles in the air and then like go into something kind of crazy and that was just like really cool for me i don't know so cinematography amazing movie i think i liked it i might need to digest it a little bit more while we're doing this podcast Mm -hmm. i decided that's what happened to me last week with grand budapest hotel because i remember and even like thinking about it now i'm like what was i thinking because i said that uh the people who put that movie as their favorite of that year uh, just did it to be edgy but then by the time we were done talking about it i was like no they might actually have a case to make like yeah, whiplash, and, Wh- so whiplash and birdman are probably still better but it's justifiable uh, that's my uh, uh right off the bat correction corner a revisionist corner is if you if if grand budapest hotel is your favorite film of that year that is a totally acceptable and defensible position i have changed my mind about that all right sid don't burn us with your hot take go okay this is my third time watching it I do think that it, this movie is, the first two times I watched it, I had no idea what was going on. And I think having more of an understanding of the plot and the motivations for the characters definitely enhances the movie. So I agree with Becca that you kind of just need to take a minute to reflect on what you actually just saw. Um, 
But that being said, third time watching it, so good. Now that I actually understand what the heck just went on. Um, yeah, it just enhanced it so much more for me. Um, well, before we started watching it, Andrew uh, told Becca and I to pay attention to the directing, which is something that I never really do because it's just like I'm watching the movie. So, But you never really think about what goes into directing it. And I don't know, just everything works so well on this with the acting, the cinematography, screenplay, everything, music, it all works so well. And it's so great. So great. Well, that's an excellent hot take, actually. My hot take, this is also my third time seeing this. And here's like, when you're talking about a guy like Denis Villeneuve and the worst movie that he's made is Prisoners. Like, you're working with some pretty incredible pedigree. I think that there's a definite case to be made for him being the most talented director working right now. Um, as far as young and up and coming, there's a lot of people who are kind of, you know, have been around forever that you can look at. Like, I think, um, uh, what's his name? I just lost it. He, he just won last year. Oh, Del Toro. Del Toro. There you go. <laughs> I think uh, he could have the argument made for him. I think he's at the top of his game. I think that um, Damien Chazelle is another one that could have his name thrown in the hat. But um, And that's just off the top of my head. I'm sure that there's more. But I, I, I really do think that the Neville New is probably the most talented guy working today who is still who could still be considered up and coming. Um, he's just had such a, just a gosh darn flawless run. He, he just hasn't had a miss yet. And I think that this definitely uh, lives up to that caliber of film. I think that there's so many amazing things going on here from, like you guys said, the performances, the cinematography. I think the score is absolutely ridiculous um, and just does such a good job at, um, reinforcing the mood of the film. The The score is very restrained. It's never like bombastic or in your face. And in fact, the most tense parts of the film pretty much don't have any score. The score is used pretty much for kind of transition scenes more than anything else. And I think that that's such a smart move. I think that the directing in this film is probably its strongest aspect though. And that's why like I, uh, Becca and I have been talking for a while now about what, um, like what good directing means. So when you say like, specifically the Oscars have gotten us talking about this. Like when you look at a film and you're like, what makes a good director and how do you, how do you really tell what a director's contributions are apart from just the general quality of the film? Basically why do best director and best picture need two separate awards, right? Is the, the crux of the question there. And I think that this film, and I think that us watching a bunch of, a bunch of Wes Anderson films kind of also maybe helps you realize that because i think that wes anderson is a really uh he has a, a, an incredibly unique and identifiable style so it's easy for us to watch those ones and be like oh these are the choices of the director and this is what the director is doing and i think that this movie specifically probably even more than uh Villeneuve's other films highlights the strengths like his strengths as a director yeah i totally agree with that i feel like i'm finally beginning to understand what it means to like f be a director yeah so um let's jump right in i really i have some notes um 
mostly just on uh, kind of my favorite things about the film, a few moments that um, uh, kind of really get me going. Uh, let's just go ahead and say right off the bat, this film definitely falls into the class of movies that uh, makes me go <laughs> at a lot of scenes because of just how freaking awesome it is. <laughs> And it's awesome in a different way from like Batman, for example, because this movie's brutal. Oh yeah, like abs, like the violence in it hits hard. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, I mean, that's that that's one thing specifically that does incredibly well is like the violence is very, it's not like protracted at all. Like it's very sudden and brief and graphic when it happens, and I, it's it's not gratifying, but it's impactful. Like Batman, he beats a guy up and hangs him off a ledge, and you're like, and it's gratifying, right? Like the violence in this movie is just impactful. You feel it. And I think a lot of that also has to do with the sound editing and mixing. But um like the the gun sounds in this are really good. I am curious, do we know? Nominated for three Oscars. It was nominated for sound editing, yeah. Sound, sound editing, uh, original score, and cinematography. So <laughs> the Academy agrees with me, basically. All the things <laughs> that I pointed out that I like is what it was nominated for, <laughs> except for well directing, done. which is weird. I feel like this definitely should have been nominated for Best Director. Mm. Let's take a, a quick gander at the – this was the 2016 Oscars. Uh, this was the year Spotlight won. Oh, this was a really, really, really stacked year, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for those of you who aren't looking at IMDb with me, um. Uh, the nominees were Spotlight, Bridge of Spies, Brooklyn, Mad Max Fury Road, Room, The Big Short, The Martian, and The Revenant. Yeah, that's a rough one. Like, <laughs> um, really, the only one that I that I probably would kick out is Brooklyn. While a great movie, probably not a Best Picture nominee. Um, Best Director, um, Inara too for The wow. Revenant, Adam McKay for The Big Short. George Miller for Fury Road, uh, Lenny Abramson for Room, and Tom McCarthy for Spotlight. Yeah, that's a that's a yeah. that's a tough category <laughs> that year. What a great year for yeah. film, though! Holy cow! <laughs> like we could discuss honestly any of those. Mm-hmm. Um, jeez, oh, yeah, and even like this was such a freaking stacked year. Holy cow! Cinematography: The Revenant, Carol. I didn't see Carol. Did you see Carol? No, I will next year. Oh, it's on your list. Yeah. Uh, the Revenant, Carol, Sicario, Fury Road, and The Hateful Eight. <laughs> like, jeez, what a gr- can we have another 2015? Heavens, people. Wouldn't that be great? Let's get another Mad Max. Yeah, can we please have it? A- George <laughs> Miller, give yeah. us another Mad Max. They got a sequel coming. Eventually. Yeah. At some point. And then he also has. A- it's either a spin up, spin off, or a follow up. With Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton. And I'm psyched what? out of my mind for it. What does that even mean? I don't know, but I'm here for it. <laughs> Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton in a Mad Max movie. I think it's Mad Max. I don't know. I saw something on Twitter that said it was a follow-up, but then I went on his IMDb. George Miller? Yeah. And it said that he had an actual follow-up with Tom Hardy. Yeah, so 3,000 Years of Longing is the one with Idris Elba. And then Wasteland is with Tom Hardy. 
So I'm not entirely sure what 3,000 years of longing is. It is. But it still sounds awesome. It doesn't say anything about it. Just that Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton are in it. <laughs> That's all you need to know, right? Yeah, that's all I need. Dude, I'm I'm super down. George uh, George Miller with Idris Elba until this one. Yes, we're off on a crazy tangent at this point. But <laughs> who really cares? Um, we're watching a movie and then we're talking about movies, so we're uh, we're doing it. Seriously, this guy he's just been hanging out though, because Mad Max is his last directing credit. Really? Oh, geez, but it's fine because before that he did Happy Feet, Happy Feet. Oh my gosh, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna read backwards george miller's imdb directing <laughs> credits just for fun because he did mad max fury road happy feet 2 happy feet babe pig in the city um lorenzo's oil which i don't know what it is, that is the witches of eastwick tina turner oh that's just a tina turner music video <laughs> and then we hit the 80s where he did like the original mad maxes Jeez, this guy hasn't done anything interesting other than Mad Max. He just needed to take a break so he could get ready for Fury Road. You got to prep yourself for that. Becca, we need now that we have a 4K TV, we need to watch Fury Road. Or no, we watched it at my parents' house, didn't we? I don't think we did. Maybe. So we watched it in 4K. Well, we can watch it again. I'd I'd be down to watch it That's a movie that you're like required to love. All right. Yes. That's such a good movie. That movie is like two straight hours of... <laughs> that movie is incredible. Just like constant adrenaline. It's true. Man, this we should... Know. Okay, we need to make a rule from here on out. New rule, all right? We are not allowed to look at the 2016 Oscars. Because <laughs> here's the thing. Sicario is a great movie, and we just uh-huh. watched it, and I'm excited to talk about it. But these are all such good yeah. movies. <laughs> Like, come on. Talk about Spotlight for an hour. Yeah. Spotlight is so good. Everybody out there who hasn't seen these movies, um, Essentials, go watch Spotlight. Go watch Fury Road. Go watch Room. Um, and those are the ones that I'd put, like, The Revenant. Go watch The Freaking Revenant. Yeah. Holy cow. I just watched that this week, <laughs> and I'm excited to talk about it at the end of the episode. Okay. Becca hasn't seen it yet. You're right, I haven't. It's so hard because there's so much that she has to catch up on, but at the same time, I want to watch so many movies that I haven't seen. Yeah. Also, I've been wanting to watch Room for a really long time. You have been wanting to watch Room. Room was actually Room is actually my pick for that year. That was my like my favorite movie of that year. Mm. I love Room. Mad Max for me. That's a fine pick. Like you can't go wrong that year. That year. (laughs) Heavens people. All right. Bring it back, Sicario. Um (laughs) I think one of my absolute favorite things about this movie is just the uh, unrelenting intensity of it. Like, especially after the the border crossing scene, I made the comment that uh, my my butthole had folded <laughs> had folded back up into itself because of being clenched so hard. But then, like, it never really released <laughs> for the rest oh of the gosh. movie, and like even at the start that. Like, what did Becca? You what did you know about this movie going into it? Uh, that it was about a drug cartel. So, what did you think after the opening scene, where I they find the bodies was in the walls? Totally in, like that was crazy. Not what I was expecting at all for an opening scene. Yeah, and it's interesting seeing it again. I don't remember if this is my second or third time seeing it, um, but watching it, 
It's so because you see them going through the house and you don't like pay any attention to it if you're not aware of it. But like all of the walls are recently patched up. Every wall in the house. I actually did notice that. I was like, why does this house look weird? Because all the all the there are all the rooms and hallways are smaller because they all just recently got a fresh layer of drywall with bodies in it. So crazy. And then the freaking bomb in the shed. Nutso. <laughs> That's all I've got to say. Yeah, right? No, but I think that I, I, I think that, that opening scene um is more than just an awesome opening. I think it does a fantastic job at introducing us to pretty much everything. I think between that scene and the follow-up in the boardroom, we're introduced and we learn everything that we need to learn for the plot to really move forward, right? And that's such a... Again, what is the freaking... There's a video somewhere on YouTube. It's called something along the lines of like how to start a movie or how to, how to do an opening scene. I've referenced it before. Go watch it. Um, because this is another great example of that, of like the movie tells you what kind of a movie you're in for. Like this is like serious grounded, but high stakes. And you learn a lot about Kate as a character. Um, the one that sticks out to me is when she's sitting there with Daniel Kaluuya. I forget his name, Reggie. Mm -hmm. And the people, the dudes are all talking in the boardroom and he leans over and he's like, so you did this all by the book, right? And she's like, of course. Like we learned that she is a by the books person, like trying to do good, but like very according to the rules. But we also learned that like, we're not playing in little league anymore. Like they're hiding bodies in the walls. So it's like this high stakes thing, but she's very by the books. And then she goes in and Josh Brolin is in sandals and a t-shirt. <laughs> and if you go into a boardroom and everybody is in a suit and then one dude is in sandals and a t-shirt, you should be afraid of that dude. Like that's just a rule that I think people should live by. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> one of my notes is just Josh Brolin's shoes. <laughs> just like every time they show, he's either wearing like sandals or like total dad shoes. And then I think for the trailer for the second Sicario, the opening shot is him wearing Crocs. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's someone who instills fear. Like, in you me. should be scared of that person. Yeah. <laughs> yes. They fear nothing if they're wearing Crocs. So, yeah, like, apart from just being awesome and, like Becca said, like, getting you in. Like, after that scene, you're either in or you're out. But it also really effectively introduces you to pretty much every main character except for Alejandro. Because him we don't meet till the plane. Yeah. Um, but his introduction is pretty awesome. Everything about him is awesome. <sighs> he's got a patchy beard. Yeah, but he's still got some handsomeness going for him. Well, of course. Oh, yeah. Um, but when he sits down, and I, I wrote this down. One of, one of my favorite quotes of his, you're asking me how a watch works. Right now, let's just keep an eye on the time. Like, that's such a freaking awesome line <laughs> when she's like, what do I need to know about the cartels? Like, he's just so cool. He is cool. <laughs> so, I don't know. That's my, that's my spiel about the opening. I think the opening is really effective. And I think that, again, it tells you exactly what kind of movie you're in for. It tells you what kind of storytelling you're going to get. It tells you what kind of characters you're going to get. And that, uh, by, for me, is, is really, really effective. And one of my favorite sequences in the film. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it definitely sets the stage for future sequences. I feel like every 
time there's some kind of shooting or some kind of interaction, every single one of those are just incredible sequences. What is your favorite sequence in this film? My favorite sequence is when they're in the tunnel and they're, they have like all the night vision goggles and it keeps like changing. Like, I don't know for me, that whole sequence in the tunnel, I guess we can just jump into it. Yeah, go for it. Um, reminded me very much of annihilation. Like that was the vibe I was getting a lot with the different like color changes. And also the sounds were very like kind of eerie and made me, it just reminded me of annihilation when they're in the, um, lighthouse. All right. And I don't know. I just thought it was like really intense and I didn't know what was going to happen. I, was super confused for like all of it especially the end when like just everything was going crazy and I everybody was shooting each other and beating each other up and I didn't know what was going on but it was really good I think that's one of the strengths of that scene is how chaotic it is yeah I agree that's why I loved it and just the way the scenes changed so quickly to like different colors between the the like night vision yeah. and the night and the white and the yeah. thermal vision is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. So cool. So awesome. And yeah, just like all the like helicopter scenes throughout the whole movie is so cool. Yeah. How about you, Sid? I think it's a toss up between the tunnel scene or the bridge scene. The bridge scene. It's so good. Cause like, I don't know, like all of, I feel like basically from the beginning, you're on edge for most of it. But there's, there never really feels like there's a huge threat looming over them. Like, the tunnel scene, one of the most chaotic scenes. But even then, it's just kind of like, compared to a lot of other action movies, this one's like pretty tame in like how crazy it gets. Mm-hmm. So, but you're still with like the music and the way that they're shooting it with like the thermal, you're still on edge for most of it. Yeah. Um, but I think it's actually funny that Becca says that it reminds her of Annihilation because I actually wrote that, that the music reminds me of Annihilation with like that kind of bullhorn drone. Yeah. But also that music is great because it's quiet in between the drones and there's this big like, and then it's quiet and it just, I don't know. You're just on edge for the whole thing. And it's so awesome. I think that, um, well actually, so I I have a question for you guys before I I jump into what I was going to say. Who, because I think that's interesting what you said, like even the most chaotic scene, we're not like worried for our characters. We don't think that they're going to get hurt mm-hmm. or that somebody's not going to make it through. You know what I mean, there really is no threat to their safety because the people that they're with and the teams that they're with are never not in control. Right. So then my question for you guys is, and hopefully you didn't read my notes. Um, who is the villain in this movie? If we assume that Kate is our protagonist, who's the antagonist? I feel like it's Josh Brolin. Yeah, I actually agree with that. Mm-hmm. I half agree. I think that the antagonist in this movie is um, his methods. That's fair. I yeah. don't think that she is confronted by him. I think she's confronted by the way that he does things. Yeah, I can see that. Because, again, from the beginning, we see that she has a desire to fix this situation. Like, the cartels are obviously a huge deal. And I think that there's a few really key scenes to determine that. I think one is when she goes and talks to her boss 
And he's like, you know, he's like, last year we prosecuted more felony drug cases than in the previous two years combined. He's like, but do you feel that on the streets? Do you feel like we're winning? And so she has this desire to get things done and she sees him getting things done. But her issue is not even necessarily with him personally. It's with the way that he is doing things. So again, if we think back to what makes a good antagonist, a good antagonist should be a reflection of the protagonist, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a reflection of what she wants to do, but it's the things that she is not willing to do to accomplish her goal, but that struggle of whether or not those things are necessary to achieve the goal. That's, that's the conflict. And I think that that's so much more interesting than just having a bad guy. And so I think that each of these scenes, um, because we're introduced to, again, like I said, the high stakes in the first scene. If we, if we look at the most notable scenes, right, throughout the film, you, you would think of like the opening, the bridge scene, um, when Shane from The Walking Dead attacks her in her apartment, uh, the tunnel scene, and then the ending scene. Uh, oh, the second ending scene and then the and the final scene, right? I think those are probably the most notable sequences. And so in the first one, we're introduced to, uh, it, you know, her as a character, her motivations, what she wants to get done, and the problem at hand. And then each of those scenes ratchets up. It, it, she, each of those scenes asks more from her. It, each of those scenes asks her to approve of something else to get this goal done. And so in that way, each of those scenes is incredibly tense, but the intensity of the entire movie keeps increasing because the morality of the solution becomes more questionable as each of the scenes goes on. That's cool. I didn't realize that while we were watching it, but totally. So like in the bridge scene, she's like, you know, there's civilians everywhere. What are you doing? You're just shooting people. Like we don't do this. This is not what we do. <laughs> but then by the end, and I think that there's a lot of subtle things, for example, like at the first, at the bridge scene, they ask for the rules of engagement and they say, you know, we need to be engaged. And then in the tunnel scene, it's weapons free. So like even like things have just escalated further and further and further. And then what makes this movie really special? What pushes it past just being an interesting character study and into being something truly special is that it asks us a question, right? The internal struggle that she has throughout the course of the film gets flipped and put on us because we are asked as an audience to approve of more than she ever is, right? She doesn't go past the tunnel. So she gets shot, kind of. He shoots her her vest mm -hmm. and she's done she doesn't know what happens after that but we do and so that's where the film really becomes special is because it flips that question and that struggle around back on us and it says okay you're with us up to this point he's gonna kill two kids and a woman and a police officer and a police officer a drug mule yeah <laughs> But like, but that's the thing is like, then it flips it around and that's where it really becomes something special is because it's asking us this question, how much will you approve of to accomplish this goal? They show us the brutality of the cartels. They show us what they're willing to do. They show us what the problem is and then ask us until what point do the means justify the ends? I think that's, I think that's really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. like even thinking 
Kate's in pretty much every scene unless it involves like Alejandro or Matt where you kind of get to see them run free and be as brutal as they want so yeah I think that's interesting that she views them as kind of being intense and brutal and like just going off the books but she doesn't see the extent of it where we get to and we get to form that opinion more for ourselves yeah, I think one of my favorite scenes when it comes to Alejandro's character specifically is when they have Guillermo tied up mm. and you know he no hablo inglés and Josh Mullen's like I love it when they know hablo inglés <laughs> like I found somebody who who you will hablo with or whatever mm. and then when he walks in and they put the camera on Guillermo's face and you see his face just drop mm-hmm. and like absolute terror come into his eyes like that one moment I think tells you just absolutely everything you need to know about Alejandro's character without saying a word. Mm-hmm. They didn't have, because here's the thing, a lazier storyteller or director would have had Josh Brolin out in the hallway being like, oh yeah, Alejandro's tortured a ton of dudes and everybody's scared of him and he's a real bad guy. Yeah, But like the patience to just have it be a facial expression where in a split second you learn everything about his character. And that's also really interesting because they don't tell you a lot about his character and exposition or anything. So you kind of have to form these opinions yourself. And just like in small moments and how other characters react to him, that's how you figure out what kind of person he is and form your opinion on him. Yeah. Well, and then... In that same vein, they they you form your opinion on him. You're like, oh yeah, he tortured that dude probably, but like, you assu- the assumption is that he waterboards him, right? Mm-hmm. But like, they they continue to push the envelope with Alejandro's character specifically. So it's not just asking you this greater situation. It's like, who is Alejandro? And like, because you meet him, and again, you're like, oh, he's so cool, he's so awesome, and then like. At the end, it's like, is he? He's still pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but he's not. I mean, he's I mean, not a he's good cool, person. He's cool, but he's not great. But he's cool, and he looks good in those suits. Yeah, it's he a nice does. Suit. Because at the same time, I think that he, more than anybody else in the film, demonstrates a, a degree of tenderness that just nobody else in the film does at any point, especially yeah. towards Kate. And I don't know if that's specifically because she reminds him of his daughter, because he mentions that a couple of times, or if he just actually maybe has a little bit of a heart left. I don't know. But Or he just knows how to use tenderness against people. Could be. Maybe he's kind just of a, evil. Maybe he's just a completely manipulative monster. Maybe. I could believe that. Yeah. That's another reason why the second Sicario sucks. <laughs> Is because you know what screw it don't go watch the second sicario don't waste your time (laughs) i'm just gonna spoil the crap out of it because it's worthless to go see it because taylor sheridan only wrote the first half of the script and then a bunch of greasy producers got their hands on the script and rewrote the second half and it's the second half is awful literally the first half is incredible and then it just falls off a cliff so don't go watch sicario 2 um and we'll just compare them right now because the second half of sicario 2 there's this basically During the first half, they go kidnap the daughter of some cartel leader. 
and bring her over to the United States and basically hold her ransom for him to do something. I don't remember exactly what. And then um, Alejandro steals her, kind of leading into the second half. He, like, kidnaps her himself and makes it his mission to get her safe, basically, because she reminds him of his daughter is the understanding, basically, right? So you have this movie where it's not even that subtle because he says it directly a few times, like, you remind me of my daughter, mm-hmm. but... While he's holding a gun to her head. Exactly. You see you see the struggle in his character where, you know, if she does genuinely remind him of his daughter, like, that's probably not easy for him to point a gun at her. But also, in his head, he's this is what he has to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you have this kind of subtle internal conflict going on whereas in the second one they're like look little girl your daughter was a little girl do you feel bad trying to do bad things to her maybe you should save her you know what i mean like it's just a little bit of subtlety versus a lot of heavy-handedness in the second one (laughs) yeah all right so don't go see the second one yeah josh brolin's still a freaking badass in the the second (laughs) one that dude rocks (laughs) but also kind of a piece of crap yeah, I think I'm leaning more towards a piece of crap. Yeah. Even though he's cool and looks yeah. good in suits. Well, again, he's he's just a, he's a really scary dude, and I think it's because of his attitude. He's so nonchalant towards everything. Yeah. Yeah. Like if somebody dies, whatever. Mm-hmm. He just opens the door, and yeah. they're getting ready for a mission. He doesn't even have a shirt on. <laughs> he wears flip-flops. Yeah. I love his opening, too, when they're in the conference room. Uh-huh. And she's like, so what's our objective? he looks at her and he smiles. He's like, to dramatically overreact. <laughs> Which is awesome. Like, what? <laughs> and again, he's in a room full of like FBI agents. <laughs> <laughs> he's just like so far past giving a crap. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's because he gets, I think he gets off on it. And he gets off on the, the violence and the war and the, uh, all of it. Like, he enjoys it. Yeah. Which is a really, again, a person you should be scared of. Like, if somebody gets off on violence like that, you should be scared of them. Yeah. He's a bad dude. <laughs> Stay away. Stay away. Um, one more quote um, that I thought was good. Alejandro, um, they're sitting in the briefing room and everybody leaves and she's asking him about himself and he's kind of reluctantly answering her questions. And then he says to her, nothing will make sense to your American ears and you will doubt everything we do, but in the end you will understand. Basically just saying the plot of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was an awesome quote. That is a good quote. Um, but I don't, I don't know that I feel like she understood by the end of it. I think she was still just frustrated and didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Why did she point a gun at him? I think that she desperately wanted to kill him because he's a bad man. And why didn't she? Because she's a good person. I honestly thought she wasn't going to sign the paper and that he was going to shoot her. He would have. I know. I thought that's what was going to happen. And I like totally wouldn't have been surprised because it would have fit both of their characters. Yeah. Again, you want to talk about being manipulative. When he looks at her and he, you would be committing suicide. So crazy. <laughs> My question is, I don't know. I know that I just said this, but like, would he have done it? I think he would have. 
How long do yeah. you wait? You know what I mean? Because at some point he's got to pull that trigger, right? Mm, at what point yeah. does he stop talking and kill her? I don't know. Would he have done it? I think he would have waited longer than he would with someone he didn't really care about. But I think he would have done it. I don't know. I think he's a fascinating character. Mm-hmm. And again, they he butcher is. him in the second one, so don't go see it. Mm. Or just watch the first half of the movie and then pretend the second half doesn't exist. Because <laughs> they even, like, there's the whole uh, police officer with his kid subplot. They try and do the exact same thing in the second one with this kid who his cousin works for the cartels and is, like, trying to get him involved. So he gets recruited. So they have this, like, side story going on of this unrelated person and then at the end like it connects like they just they they miss all the things that made the first one special and try and shoehorn them into the second one really just poor writing yeah that's not good and then they set it up for a freaking third one i actually saw that when i was looking up something on reddit on here apparently they are doing a third one but the director is not going to return for that one well Villeneuve didn't do the second one either yeah but even the director oh the director of the second one's not gonna return yeah (laughs) well yeah you why why do you keep making it then because people will go see it money i'll go see the third one (laughs) (laughs) but like i don't know that i like this one enough to go see a second one i felt like it was just fine on its own and it is i don't need any more but here's the thing i would go see a third one I'd probably go see it anyway, but uh, if any movie producers out there are listening, which I doubt, but if you are, <laughs> if anybody who has creative interests in Sicario 3, just go balls to the wall. Like, make it Mission Impossible at this point. Like, that's the only way to save it because you couldn't decide in the second one. You wanted to have the crazy action scenes, but you didn't understand what made the action scenes so good in this one. So you had these balls out crazy firefights action scenes and then you tried to have all the subtlety and emotional depth of this movie and you can't have both of them so just make sicario 3 mexican mission impossible and call it a day because that's the only way that it's going to be really good i think yeah probably because mission impossible is just great (laughs) oh yeah that's true tom cruise may be a piece of garbage but mission impossible is great Who's your favorite character out of, well, I guess, mostly the main three, but I you I guess you could pick Daniel Kaluuya if you wanted to. See, I love, the thing is, all three of the main guys are super attractive. So I'm struggling here. You're just picking out who you think is the hottest? <laughs> no. No, I'm going to have to go with Alejandro, because he's just... Even though you're like you know you're supposed to hate him, just everything he does is like it feels right for his character. Mm-hmm. You know it's wrong morally and for society, but like you just you can understand his motivations and he he's just like we've said he's he's just cool, and he's an interesting character to watch. So kind of like the Joker, you know everything he's doing is bad. But you want to watch him. And, like, scenes without him are just kind of boring. Yeah. And you're just kind of rooting for him. So. I mean, I think I, like, Daniel. How do you say his last name? Daniel Kalua. Kalua. I don't know why that's hard for me. Daniel Kalua. I think he's my favorite. Really? Why is that? I don't know. He's just, like, this cool, calm, collected guy throughout the entire movie. And also has his head on straight and 
is supporting Emily Blunt the entire time, and it's just like a cool good guy. Well, it's such a genius addition to have him in there too, because he is our baseline, right? When we start the movie, they are on the same page. Mm-hmm. But by the time we get to the end of it, we see how far she has extended herself because we see her next to him. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just such a genius way to like show us how far her how far Kate has pushed the line. And yeah, I think he's the only actual good guy in the film. I think Kate is. I mean, I think she is. She goes through a lot of crap and has to deal with a lot of crap. But like like you said, he's our baseline and he's like constantly just good the entire time. Yeah. There's actually a theory that he was in on it the whole time. Really? I, I don't know much more than that. But how, did, how does that track? I don't know. Because I haven't researched it at all, but I don't know. Maybe there's some weight to that. Maybe there's like YouTube videos on it or something. Maybe. Hmm. I'll have to look into that because that's... Yeah. I would never have thought that. It'd be interesting. Like, Me either. Because I had heard about it beforehand. So as I was watching it, I was thinking, well, like he's trying to talk her out of a lot of things. So if the goal is to get her out of there, like if she's going to ruin their plans, then it makes sense. But there are other things that don't quite make sense. Like they do need her there because if CIA is going to operate outside of the U.S., blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. Yeah, that'd be interesting to well, look into. I guess into. that's... that's an interesting point because we learned at the end that like they don't care about her they didn't need her specifically yeah they just needed somebody mm-hmm. and they needed somebody who had a desire to do good things that's it and i mean that's why they picked her you know what i mean it's because mm-hmm. she actually wanted to get stuff done and so they knew they could um get her to extend herself yeah because they just need her to be able to operate within the u.s which is so slimy it really is. Um, but yeah. One thing that I loved, and I think that this is due to the direction um, and writing and screenplay, whatever, all of it, um, is that we just, we didn't know anything more than Kate knew the entire movie mm-hmm. until the end when we start to see things that she didn't see. But like, we didn't understand what was going on or why things were happening the way they were happening. And we were just like kind of following Kate along, which I think helped us get into that moral questioning position that you were talking about earlier. And I think that that's due to the direction, but it also like held me into the movie more like kept me interested. I might credit that more to writing than to directing. All right. But uh, you probably argue it both ways. I don't know. I think my favorite out of the three is probably Matt. He's just like, he's such a fascinating character because every time I see a character like that, I'm like, how did, how did you get to this point? Like, were you always just kind of a sociopath that became enabled by like the military and the CIA and stuff like that? Or like, did they make you this? And like, I think he has a few defining moments, but I, I think that one of my absolute favorites is at towards the end after Kate punches him and he just manhandles her, like shoves her face into the ground until she calms down. And he's like, you went down the wrong tunnel. You saw things you weren't supposed to see. Like the way that he says all of that, he's just so matter of fact. And like, again, he's a scary dude. Mm-hmm. And I think 
a lot of that is because he is always in control. And somebody who is always in control is also scary. I don't know. He, I think he's my favorite out of the three. I think he's just fascinating. But all in all, just a close second. So who was like actually in charge of this whole mission? Was it Alejandro or was it Matt? It's Matt. Or, mm-hmm. Okay. Alejandro is a freelance. Like, here's the thing. Yeah. All, it, Matt is just using Alejandro as well. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought, but... Like, Alejandro's goal all along was to kill the guy that he kills at the end. That's all he wanted was to kill that guy. Mm-hmm. And so his interests happened to align long enough with Matt's that they just kind of handshake agreement, I think. Like, let's do this. Our interests align, and so we're going to go. And then, like, all the other people, were they all CIA? And then... Yeah. Okay. Because even, like, when she's when uh, Kate is asking Matt who Alejandro works for, he says he works for whoever cut him loose. Yeah. So I think that's all it was, is that their interests aligned. Mm-hmm. So... I love him. Again, the characters in this movie are just outstanding. Um, I do want to talk about the direction. Um, And I'm curious if you guys picked up on anything. Because this, like I said, I think that when talking about movies, um, that's one of the hardest things to pin down is what good direction is. right? And what do you credit to a director? And what do you credit to... uh, you know, what do you credit to the writer and to production design and to the actors themselves? Like, so I guess that's my question to you guys, because I have a few things specifically that I noted down, but what did you guys notice in this movie that you would consider to be the result of good directing? And I'm putting you on the spot here. I think actually while we were watching, um, like around the, the bridge scene, you know, I was thinking about like, what is, the director actually in charge of which you know i'm not entirely sure of but just like the choreography of them like they first get into mexico and there's like all five of those suvs and then we get all the uh, mexican police like pull out in front of them and then they start going and then and then they get them from behind and it's just i don't know it all just works so well and the planning that goes into that and just how everything goes forth from there with the bridge and the people in the cars and I don't know. I think, yeah, a big thing for me, you know, because I don't know too much about it, just what they pull together from all these great little aspects. Yeah. So, so again, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's a really good point. Like it's tough to, because you look at, you look at the awards, right. That we hand out to movies and it's, there's sound editing and sound mixing and, uh, you know, editing and cinematography and writing and actor and director. Like, what do you credit to the director? And I think that um, really near the top of that list is just quality control. Like, the biggest thing that the director is in charge of is making sure that the movie is good. Making sure that the right takes are used, that when you're on set, like, everybody just follows the directions of the director, right? Like, the director decides, like, okay, we don't need to do more takes of this or yeah, let's keep pounding this one out or whatever. So I think that quality control is probably one of the the top uh, um, responsibilities of a director. Becca? Um, 
I don't know. I guess just kind of going back to what I was saying earlier that maybe it is more due to writing, but I think just like when, like which scenes we are shown first and like the order that we're given them, um, is like set up really well. And like, we know exactly the amount of information we need to know for the upcoming scene. And specifically like what happens in that scene perfectly sets up for the next scene like that's what i noticed throughout the movie that it just like sets itself up for the next thing and the next thing yeah i think that um and maybe somebody i'm sure that there's somebody out there who's actually taken film classes and had the role of a director really broken down to him my understanding of it is just basically from me figuring things out so i could be completely off base who knows but um i think that um really high on the list of the director's responsibilities as well is coaching the actors, right? Because the director knows what he wants to get out of the film and he knows what he needs to get out of his actors. So I think you look at these people who are pretty great actors, like, uh, but I look at Emily Blunt specifically, who I think overall in her career is probably generally the weakest out of the cast, right? You look at somebody like Josh Brolin, who is a, a, a total unsung hero in Hollywood. Like, that dude is a fantastic actor. Uh, spoiler alert, he, he's on my shortlist for supporting actor for Thanos this year. Like, that's how good he is. <laughs> dude is just a great, great, great actor. But you look at Emily Blunt specifically and how subtle of a performance he's able to pull out of her. And I think specifically, I think just because this is the movie that I most recently saw her in, like, think about, like, A Quiet Place. And, like, she's fine in that. But, like, with a less experienced and less, I think, exacting director, her performance isn't nearly as dynamic as it is in this. And granted, every performance doesn't have to be your greatest and whatever. But I think that her performance specifically is a lot due to the director pulling that performance out of her and saying, you know, try it this way or... You know, if she did a take and, and he didn't love the way that it was, like, oh, you know, hold your face this way or think about this or that. Like, that's a, a really high on the the list of priorities for a director is making sure that your actors understand what you are trying to get out of that, out of the scene and out of the film, and helping them get into the headspace where they're able to do that. Somebody like Daniel Day-Lewis, obviously, you don't have to do that. But. <laughs> I do think that, Emily Blunt's performance was my favorite and the best. So good. Like, mm -hmm. just amazing. And uh, then, yeah, you think about it. She, out of, like, the four main characters, she's the only one who's never been nominated for anything. Golden Globe is what my Blu-ray cover said. But nominated <laughs> for things that matter. Right. So, I don't know. It just shows that she can keep up with them with a good director yeah. and like a good screenplay. If she's got yeah, if she's got the right material to work with, she absolutely uh she's not outclassed by them. She just might yeah. need a little bit more help to get there. Yeah. Um and then uh two other things I wrote down on my list as far as good direction and I've talked to Becca about this before, but I think that again, um very high on the priority list for a director is the tone of the movie. I think that keeping a consistent tone, and again, I think that continually ratcheting up the intensity 
is due more to direction than anything else. I'd say direction followed by editing followed by screenplay would be kind of the list of the people who had an influence on that. But just again, the butt puckering intensity of this movie. <laughs> like butt puckering intensity. Oh yeah. I, I like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then finally, again, uh, Johan Johansson did the music for this, but I think that the use of music, like we talked about in the most intense scenes, there's no music. Um, but it's more used as kind of a segue and that's, I think, I think a decision of the director. Mm -hmm. Cool. So, and I, I think that all of those things are, are pretty, uh, I guess, easy to notice. So for those of you out there who are wondering what, how to tell if a movie was directed well, we're talking about quality control, performances, tone. Um, and how music is used. All right. Well, there mm -hmm. you have it. Yeah. Um, can we just reinforce one more time how awesome the bridge scene is? It's so cool. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I want to rewatch it. Oh. <laughs> and the ending scene. Or not the second two. I, I always think of it as the ending scene because, well, actually all three ending scenes I think are spectacular. Mm -hmm. Um, first off with Alejandro at the dinner table. And he's telling them to keep eating. Mm -hmm. Like, just a monster. Yeah. And then he, like, lets the dude sit there for long enough, like, knowing that his family is dead. Mm -hmm. That's just awful. Yeah. Like, and as a married person, like, my absolute worst nightmare. <laughs> but also, he yeah. did throw his daughter into a vat of acid. Yeah, so. when he tells him it's not personal, like, that was probably the wrong move. Yeah. Yeah. No. It... Mm. And he looks well, at I, I knew it was, it was. Like, I knew ah. it was going to happen that he was going to shoot the kids and the wife. I mean, obviously, but like, I was just like, I think it was obvious the first time I saw it. I didn't know. Oh really? I was up in the air. Yeah. I was like, what? I was like, I thought that he was just going to like walk right up and do it. Like just immediately and then talk to him. But I was just waiting for like how graphic it would be. And luckily it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> but then the scene, um, with, uh, him and Kate in her apartment. I think it's just incredible. Such a capstone for their characters. Oh, yeah. And then the kid playing soccer at the end, and you hear the gunfire in the distance, and they just keep playing. Mm -hmm. Like Those scenes just say, like all three of those scenes say a lot. I love the addition of like the little short clips of the police officer. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. I just thought that was like a really good way to kind of show both sides a little bit well it, f it fleshes out the environment more it, yeah it humanizes somebody on the other side yeah because again there's a lot of people that just get dropped in this movie mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it, it humanizes the other side and i think that that's in a lot of i guess war and or action movies that take themselves really seriously i think that's one of the biggest uh, flaws consistently across the board is like everybody that is fighting has a reason to be fighting, right? And I think that one of the biggest flaws that war movies specifically, but action movies as well, do is they dehumanize the other side. And I think one of the, the did you ever? I don't think you've seen it, Becca, but did you see Hacksaw Ridge? So, yeah, yeah. So that was I strongly disliked that movie, and that was my biggest gripe with it is that the whole 
point of the movie was, you know, this guy valued human life, wouldn't kill anybody, and but still wanted to, you know, contribute to the cause. But he, mm-hmm. he refused to kill anybody, yeah. right? Because he valued human life, essentially. Yeah. And then the last hour is just, like, horribly gory. And, again, that's how it was. Mm-hmm. But the way that it's filmed and put together in that movie, again, a little bit of a tangent here, just hugely dehumanizes the Japanese. Yeah. And, like, this is us... You know, uh, we're retaliating for an attack, but point being, they had a reason to fight, too. Mm-hmm. And he it spends the whole movie dealing with this moral question of like, is it, is it right in any situation to kill? Mm-hmm. And then it's like, yeah, it's probably cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was directed by Mel Gibson yeah. who does not have a great standing with a lot of cultures in the world. Well, Hollywood welcomed him back with open arms with that one. Nominated him for like 15 things. Yeah. But that was my major gripe with that movie walking out of it is I was like, you spend this whole time dealing with this really, you know, touchy and subtle issue. And mm-hmm. then it's like, nah, we're just going to blow some dudes up for a yeah. while. But Andrew Garfield isn't going to kill anybody. So <laughs> the themes of the movie are preserved. And it's yeah. like, no, nah, you kind of betrayed everything you were trying to do. Yeah. Plus, Andrew Garfield should have been nominated for Silence that year because that's almost definitely a 10. That movie's so good. That's when we got to watch when we can, like, really sit down and be depressed for a while. Oh, boy. Just like every other movie on our bookshelf. Yeah. You know, it's better to be depressed and watch a movie than just be depressed. So. Hmm. Pick your poison. I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Did you guys have anything else that you wanted to talk about? Nope. Um, I have one other thing just with the cinematography. I I don't know. I noticed a lot of things. I thought that the camera angles were really cool and like the point of view, like specifically with like the bridge scene and mm-hmm. all like all of that. Like it will show like the camera from the helicopter and then from a police car and then from inside one of the vehicles. And like, I don't know. I just thought it was like a very good way to show exactly what was happening and make you feel like you were really there. Um, I also, sorry, before moving on from that, have we talked about, um, Hitchcock and the bomb under the table at all? No. So Hitchcock, and I'll, I'll, I'll butcher this, but Hitchcock, uh, once said that, um, the intensity of a scene is determined by what we know and what we don't know. So basically you show two men sitting at a table talking and the scene is boring but you pan and you show that there's a bomb under the table. Suddenly we're waiting for that bomb to go off and every we're hanging on every word and everything becomes intense. And that scene does a really effective bomb under the table because they're driving through and you're like, and they've been saying for the last 15 minutes, if they try anything, it'll be at the border. If they try anything, it'll be at the border. And you pan around and you see this dude roll up covered in face tattoos. You're like, well, that might not be great. And they keep showing you more bombs under the table, so to speak. Mm-hmm. They pan in, and finally, they show that he has a gun. And, like, that's when it starts going crazy. It's just such an effective way to build tension. Yeah, I noticed it specifically in that scene, in that sequence, and I thought it was really good. Um, for a much better explanation of what I just talked about, 
go watch the video from Lessons on the, Lessons from the Screenplay on the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards. Go watch that video, and it'll explain what I just said a lot better. Please continue, Becca, what you were saying. Um, oh, the only other thing that I made note of was just the colors. I felt like most of the movie was just brown and tan, but it actually worked so well. Like, I was kind of surprised. Like, a lot of people were just wearing tan, and the background was just brown. Um, and then there were a few scenes where, like, everything was blue. But, like, it, I don't know. It almost didn't matter what scene it was. Like, all the colors matched, which I thought was really interesting and worked really well for the film. Nice. Yeah. Roger Deakins is a master, and he finally won for Blade Runner 2049, also directed by Denis Villeneuve. And one of the greatest movies ever made. <laughs> Ryan Gosling is Bay. We already knew that. Oh yeah. Hang on. Uh, hot take. Uh, Ryan Gosling or Ryan Reynolds? Ryan Gosling. Ryan Gosling. Thank you. I get into this argument every time. Yeah. Probably once a week at my work. What? Do you know he was cast in the Notebook because they wanted someone who wasn't handsome? <sighs> what? Really messed, I got that wrong. Really messed that up. Yeah. But we thank them for it. Yeah, thank you guys. We we really do. Probably once a week we get into the Ryan Gosling versus Ryan Reynolds argument. <laughs> oh, Ryan Gosling every single time. And so many people say Ryan Reynolds and I don't get it. I mean, Ryan Reynolds is hot, but he's no Ryan Gosling. No. Look at this man. He's on our wall. He's amazing. I gotta say, I got a, a good angle. It's, it's just staring <laughs> at Ryan Gosling. <laughs> just getting lost in his side profile. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's orange in this one. But he still looks good. He yeah. looks better than Trump in orange. That's fair. It's not hard. <laughs> no. All right, folks. Um, well, get working in your little brains about your scores because you guys know what time it is. Okay. So uh, for the character of Alejandro, Apparently, there was a lot more dialogue for him and a lot more exposition as to his character and just kind of the life that he lived. Um, but with his super, with uh, Denis Villeneuve's kind of supervision, they cut back about 90% of what he was supposed to say. Good directing. Yeah, very good. Um, Roger Deakins had to convince Josh Brolin to do this through email, which... I don't know. I just find that endearing. I really like that. <laughs> Can you imagine Roger Deacon sliding into your Gmail? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be amazing. Speaking of a little uh, tidbit, um, we were going to talk about this movie, but I don't know if we still were, or if we still are. Um, in Drive, um, there was, in the original screenplay, there was like three or four times as much dialogue as there is in the final film. And um, Ryan Gosling and, is it Michelle Williams? Yes. Isn't that film? Isn't yeah. Michelle Williams, right? Mm -hmm. Basically, like, they, rather than say their lines, decided to just stare at each other a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, they just didn't, they just, would do, would do, they would just do takes and just not say their lines. Yeah. And it works so well for that movie. So, that's that's one of my favorite fun facts about a movie ever, <laughs> is that so they just great. refused to say their lines and instead yeah. just stared at each other a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the, the tunnel scene when they're using the thermal vision, they actually used a thermal camera and they didn't like have to do any of the post-production or anything to it. That's so, that's <laughs> I awesome. mean, it makes sense, but that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, so along the same lines, when they're like going down the stairs and you could see all the footprints, 
uh, what they did is they had uh, one of the prop guys, he, he, I don't know, he, like, heated up his shoes and then would walk and then they, like, did the take. Because a normal person, you're not going to get, like, that crazy of a thermal from their shoes. Yeah. So, but that was awesome. Um, And then the, the part where... Uh, Emily blunts in the tunnels and she hits her head. They decided to keep that in because that wasn't scripted at all. Um, but Denis Villeneuve said in an interview he left it in um, because it added realness to the mission. I think that's an awesome moment. Yeah. Because you think it's a gunshot. Uh-huh. I always think it's a gunshot and then mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. All that's right. Awesome. Well. Thank you. Successful trivia. Thank you. Yes. Um, well, we're going to move on to final thoughts and rating out of 10, and we're going to put this movie on the Weston scale. Becca. All right. Well, I think that there are a lot of great things about this movie. I'm not sure how much I loved it. I think it's definitely my least favorite of his movies. Um, but I think it's good. Again, it's a crazy bar that he's set though. Like. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> the, that's my least favorite of all his movies. So, really good. Um, I think I will give it an 8.2. That's fair. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah, I think third time around, I really enjoyed this one. So, I didn't mention before, but the second time I watched it, I watched it with my parents. And we were either A, pausing it to explain to my mom what was going on, or B, pausing it so my dad could explain the culture of Mexico. <laughs> so... <laughs> Because he's been to a study abroad there twice, so apparently he knows the whole culture. (laughs) So definitely more enjoyable when I got to watch it in silence, and more enjoyable than the first time when I didn't know what was going on. So, but yeah, long tangent over. It's great. Everything works so well in this. The music, the acting, cinematography, everything's so good. And I'm going to give this a 8.5. Six. Yeah. So I enjoyed it quite a bit more than you guys did. I think just based on what number I'm going to give it. And I'll preface this a little bit. Um, the definitive ranking of Denis Villeneuve movies from best to worst is Blade Runner 2049, Annihilation. Or not a line. <laughs> Blade Runner 2049, <laughs> Arrival, huh. Enemy, Sicario, Prisoners. And honestly, um, Enemy and Arrival fluid blade run 2049 obviously a 10 and honestly um both enemy and arrival could be tens for me i think arrival is very close to a 10 for me enemy is close but not as close (laughs) that's what i'm saying those two could definitely flip up i gotta watch each of them at least once more like really uh trying to decide that but both of those could potentially be 10 so that's the bar that we're working with here so again when i say this is his second weakest film like it's it's such a radically high bar that has been set Mm -hmm. um again i think that for me what makes it work is that question of at until what point do the means justify the ends and I guess we didn't really talk about this, but on a on a slightly uh, more subtle level, like the idea of revenge and whether or not 
it can be satisfying. Like that's an interesting thing to explore as well. But I think mostly that idea of, again, like if we are accomplishing a good goal, how far are we willing to push that line? And I think that's a really interesting question, uh, not just for this film, but um, a lot of politics in general and kind of life in general. And I think that this film asks that question so effectively, um, but it also doesn't beat you over the head with it that um, I think I'm going to give this one a 9.3. Not a lot I don't like about it. All right. So we had, what, an 8.4, an 8.6, and a 9.3? Is that right? Yeah. So that probably puts it at like an 8.8. Yeah. Right? 8.7? Yeah, that's good. 8.8. Call it an 8.8. That would tie it with Birdman. All right, that's fair. Um, I think I liked it probably. Actually, I think I like Birdman more than Sicario. That's fair. You're sixes at that point. I don't think I rated Birdman better than Sicario, though. Yeah, I need to go through and break down who did what. But for another day. Um, puts it kind of in the middle of the list as far as our movies go. Tree of Life still uh, very much at the top. Dancing in the Dark, number two. So, yeah. All right. I do think we're getting uh, more critical as we go, though. So. Yeah, I think that's true. Eh, maybe. I mean... Django and Children of Men are really the only two from the early days that are really high up. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So that concludes our discussion of Denis Villeneuve's uh, Sicario. If you don't want to hear us talk about other things, we love you and we thank you for hanging out with us. Um, but we are going to talk about other things. There's a lot of other things to talk about. Um, if you're wondering what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about what other movies we've been watching. Becca and I have been watching a lot of Wes Anderson films. I'm sure that Sid has been watching a lot of films as well. Mm-hmm. And the nominees for the Golden Globes were announced, which are kind of a good indication of where the Oscars are going to go. So we're going to talk about that as well. But yeah, so if you don't hear talk, if you don't want to hear us talk about those things, then go away, and we love you. But come back. Uh, well, actually, uh, we are going on hiatus after this uh, for probably three or four weeks. It's the holidays. Um, scheduling is becoming a lot more difficult for us. Um, with a lot of family events on the weekends and stuff like that. So we are going to be going on hiatus until the new year, at the very least, um, maybe a week or two into it. Uh, when we come back, we will have um, our breakdowns of our predictions for the Oscar, our favorite movies of the year. We're obviously going to keep watching movies, keep going to see movies in the theater. So we're going to have a breakdown of our favorite movies of the year, um, our predictions for the Oscars, what we think should win, what we think will win, all that kind of stuff. Um Oscars are my favorite time of year. I love the Oscars. I know Sid is with me and Becca tolerates it. I enjoy the Oscars. Yeah. Um, So we'll be back for that. And if you don't want to listen to anything more, we love you. Um, And if you do, stick around. Three, two, one. It's going to be fun. Go. Sid, what have you been watching? I watched The Revenant, which was freaking fantastic. So good. Uh, Emmanuel Lubezki filmed that. Yeah. And it was... It's freaking uh anyway it was great i also watched do you hang on do you think that it's leo's best performance do you think that's what he should have gotten the oscar for mm, probably not i don't know like he's really good in it but i would say he's really good because he doesn't talk too much that it like all kind of rides on 
just like his facial it's a very physical performance yeah so i would say if he didn't win the oscar he would have killed himself in the next movie because (laughs) he he basically almost did in this one but i mean like i've heard he's really good in wolf of wall street which i haven't seen phenomenal okay here's the thing wolf of wall street is such a hard movie to recommend because it's so um crazy crass crass is Uh a good word there's a lot of questionable content in it that's the point of it the debauchery is the point of the movie Uh but it is so outlandishly good yeah like very few movies reach the peak of how good that movie is Uh but like i said it's so hard to recommend because it's about this ridiculous lifestyle that jordan belfort um lives Mm -hmm. and the consequences of that and how it affects the people around him and all that kind of stuff but they don't hold back showing anything and so it's so hard to recommend for anybody who like even if people have like a high limit for what offends them like it's a lot but it's so good i'm gonna put that one to the test next year okay but thinking to other of his performances um what's eating gilbert great I haven't seen it. He's really good in that one. Because, um, yeah, he really disappears into the role because he plays like a mentally challenged person. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also, while I didn't like the movie, he's really good in The Aviator. I haven't seen that either. It's pretty boring and long, but he's really, really good in it. I think my favorite performance of his might be Shutter Island. Okay. I need to give that one a rewatch. It's very good. It's been a few years. Uh my biggest thing with his performance in The Revenant is that it's it's such a shame that he had to share the screen with Tom Hardy mm-hmm. because Tom Hardy steals that movie for yeah. me. Because he's very his character is very charismatic and just kind of like talks all the time, so it's very easy for him to take the scene. His whole "God is a squirrel" speech. Yeah. <laughs> so I shot that some bitch and like that. Oh, that entire yeah. That is for all of the insane camera work and everything in that movie. I was just going to say that. That one scene with them sitting by the fire mm-hmm. is probably my favorite scene yeah. in the whole movie. I think one thing that really struck me with the camera work is during violent scenes in a different movie, they would be like right up in there and shaky cam kind of stuff, but everything is just so smooth and they're just like showing you kind of kind of like a panoramic view and like a landscape view of all the violence that's going on. The opening scene to that movie is phenomenal. So I think good. there's two that like completely take my breath away. The first is the opening sequence because mm-hmm. it's it's all one long take. Yeah. And the second is when um I think it's right after he eats the buffalo liver. Mm-hmm. And he gets on his horse and s- starts running and it's it's right before he goes off the cliff oh yeah and, and they're all and chasing the him. camera the camera does a complete 360 around him while he's riding on the horse like the camera working that seat it is just phenomenal yeah. like absolutely insane it's so crazy so good we gotta watch it sometimes but it's yeah. so good yeah it really is really really good and then right, add it to the list <laughs> <laughs> it's list, on the shelf this list is yep. never ending i'll pull it on the shelf <laughs> um and then i also watched a pretty similar movie i watched the gray um, is that with liam neeson yeah with the wolves yeah i actually really liked it i haven't seen it i have heard that it's very different than what was advertised that it's more slow 
Um, so I was honestly kind of worried going into it that it was going to be too slow. But it had a really good balance between the two. That's not the one where they're stuck in the ski lift, is it? No, that's where they uh, their plane crashes in Alaska and there's all the wolves that are mm. going after them. It's actually really good. <laughs> I mean, I really liked it. Right. And it was actually really scary. And then the last one I saw, First Reformed. Dude, that's with Ethan Hawke, right? Yeah. I, I That's on Netflix, isn't it? Amazon. Amazon. Mm-hmm. I need to see that. It was pretty good. I, I d- It's very kind of abstract and pretty slow. But I thought it was really good. I need to see that. I put from my review on Letterboxd, I said, I don't know what just happened, but I liked it. So, But Ethan Hawke is so good in it. He's another underappreciated actor. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were mad that he didn't get nominated for a Golden Globe. If he's so. got a good director behind him, he can really pull it out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those are all of my nub note. Uh, we haven't watched a ton. Mostly just Wes Anderson. Yeah, we watched uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, which was delightful. That's the perfect word to describe yeah. it. <laughs> it was very delightful. Like, just so charming. Yeah, I loved it. Like, again, we could dissect that one forever as far as, like, the themes of, like, responsibility and family and stability and all of that. But it's just so gosh darn cute. <laughs> It made me so happy. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. But there's, uh, similar to kind of what we discussed about Grand Budapest Hotel, there's a lot going on mm-hmm. as far as themes and characters and everything go. But you can watch it and just be charmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is the same way I felt. We also watched Bottle Rocket. It it was fine. I like, felt the was, same way about that fun. one. I thought it was just delightful. Yeah. A lot of fun to watch. Uh, that was his first film. So, like... Not his yeah. best, obviously, yeah. but... And not that... Here's the thing. Not that it's a very high bar, but that's probably the best Owen Wilson performance I've ever seen. Yeah. And like I said, that, not that that's a very high bar, but <laughs> <laughs> he really kills it in that. Yeah, he does. Uh, Revisionist Corner. Last week, I mentioned that Luke Wilson co-wrote a bunch of Wes Anderson films. It actually is Owen Wilson that co-wrote them. Mm-hmm. I said that last week, so all of you who... Uh, nobody cares, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm just correcting that. Um, so yeah, we've been watching some Wes Anderson films, and they are fun. Or we just we're, we watched Fantastic Mr. Fox, and then we just decided we're just gonna go through it chronologically. So some point soon we'll watch Rushmore, and then we'll do I think Darjeeling Limited is after that because we'll just skip Royal Tenenbaums because we've seen that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd be fine watching it again, but it's a great one. We've got a lot of movies to get through, and so. a lot of movies <laughs> to get through. All right. Um, anything else that we watched since last week? No. Oh, we went and saw <laughs> Fantastic Beasts. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was so disappointed. What a gosh darn... Because di- the first one's not bad. It really isn't. Yeah. I, I really like the first one. But heavens, was this one awful. So disappointing and just all over the place and not good. Dang it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, so we are going to, we're already at an hour 20, so we're just going to quickly, um, buzz through the Golden Globe nominees, um, excuse me, (laughs) um, Andy Samberg and Sandra Oh will be hosting apparently, um, speaking of, (laughs) we just mentioned very quickly how stupid the whole Kevin Hart situation is. Yeah, but I'm happy he's not hosting anymore. I mean, I don't dis—I don't dislike him as a comedian. He's fine. 
I don't love him. You put him with The Rock and he becomes 10 times funnier. Yeah. I just feel like he's he's a lot. He is a I lot. can't handle him. Have you seen Get Hard? No. Have you seen that, Becca? No. Um. So Will Ferrell, do you know what it's about? Yeah. Do you know? No. Will Ferrell is this like crazy rich dude and he gets framed by his father-in-law for like embezzling or something like that and is determined that he's going to go to prison so he hires kevin hart to teach him how to be hard and how to make it in prison but kevin hart is this like suburban dad but he offers to pay him a lot of money to do it so like they build like a fake prison and kevin hart's like coaching him it's actually a pretty funny movie really stupid but pretty (laughs) funny as i said you put kevin hart with a decent lead and he's he's good okay but here's the thing this is what pisses me off about it is so many people were jumping uh, at Disney and getting pissed at them for firing James Gunn Mm -hmm. from Guardians of the Galaxy. And then the exact same situation happens with Kevin Hart, and everybody's like, yeah, F that guy, get him down. It's like you don't get to be one way on the situation and all of a sudden flip-flop just because you like Kevin Hart less than you like Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Keep your moral compasses straight and consistent, people. That's my rant for the day. (laughs) All right. Um, really quick, uh, the Golden Globes announced they will be taking place January. Um, best motion picture drama. They they separate drama and then comedy and musical. Which comedy and musical are weird to group together? But who cares? Yeah. Uh, best motion picture drama: Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, If Bill Street Could Talk, and A Star Is Born. Um, so we have just not seen If Bill Street Could Talk because I don't think it's out yet. Is no, it? it's not out yet. Yeah. So those are the nominees. Um. I'm not surprised by any of them. Um, I haven't seen Bohemian Rhapsody, so I can't speak to that one. I but would not. That's what I'm saying. From what I've heard, it's not a best. From what I've heard overall, movie. yeah, like from what I heard, basically Rami Malek's performance is really good, and the rest of it is pretty meh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would definitely agree with so that. I'm surprised to see that up there. Not surprised. I think Black Panther is going to get nominated everywhere. I hope so. And I don't know if Black Klansman is going to be kind of on the same level. Because it hasn't gotten the publicity of Black Panther. Yeah. I didn't like Black Klansman. I thought it was fine. I wouldn't... Like, I wouldn't nominate for the Oscars. But I could see, like, maybe Golden Globes. Yeah. Yeah. Go back same. to when Black Klansman came out. We talked about it on the podcast for probably 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I explained why I don't like it. Um, hopefully, people don't just think I'm a racist for not liking Black Klansman. But <laughs> I just didn't think it was a very good movie. Yeah. Um, cool story. Really, to be told, didn't think it was a very good movie. Um, out of those, so best motion picture drama, which do you guys pick out of these? Uh, Stars Born. I think it's got to yeah, be a Stars Born. A Star is yeah. Born, I think for it's sure. got to be a Stars I mean, Born. I feel like if I were to see if Beale Street could talk, it would be a toss up. I'm ready for that because that's yeah. Barry Jenkins. Yeah, I'm so ready for that. I haven't seen anything about that. Barry Jenkins did Moonlight. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, best Actress in a Motion Picture Drama, Glenn Close in The Wife, Lady Gaga, Star is Born, Nicole Kidman, Destroyer, Melissa McCarthy, Can You Ever Forgive Me, Rosamund Pike, A Private War. I have only seen A Star is Born. I've seen Same. A Star is Born and Can You Ever Forgive Me, but I'm going to go with Lady Gaga. Dude, I would love to see Lady Gaga get an Oscar. That'd she be so did dope. so good in that movie. She was phenomenal. I loved so her in that. Uh, best actor in a motion picture Bradley Cooper in A Star is Born Willem Dafoe at Eternity's Gate that's about um, Van Gogh right mm-hmm. uh, Lucas Hedges Boy Erase Rami Malek Bohemian Rhapsody and John David Washington in Black Klansman Bradley Cooper Bradley Cooper mm-hmm. Bradley Cooper I hear Willem Dafoe is really good in 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to see At Eternity's Gate if I can ever find it playing anywhere near us. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Best motion picture, musical or comedy? Uh, Crazy Rich Asians, The Favorite, Green Book, Mary Poppins Returns, and Vice. Haven't seen any of them. I haven't seen any of them, but I'm going to say The Favorite. Yeah. Dude, I'm I flip flop between the favorite and vice as to what I'm looking forward to most. Yeah. Because I love the big short and I hate Dick Cheney, so I'm <laughs> ready for vice. <laughs> Wait, I did see Crazy Rich Agents, but that one's okay. But I was But I I was annoyed that they didn't nominate eighth grade because uh, I that's fair. loved that movie. Uh, but I also love Jorgos Lanthimos, so I'm really ready for the favorite. Yeah. Uh, best Actress in a Musical or Comedy, Emily Blunt, Mary Poppins Returns, Olivia Coleman in The Favorite, <laughs> Elsie Fisher in 8th Grade, Charlize Theron in Tully, and Constance Wu in Crazy Rich Asians. I have only seen 8th Grade, so. Yeah, Elsie Fisher. But I actually have her on my short list for Best Actress, so. Same here. I don't think I'll give it to her. I think it's going to, I think I would give it, right now I would give it to, um, what's her name in Hereditary? But oh, Tony Collette. Tony oh, Collette. Yeah. yeah. Uh, best actor in a motion picture musical or comedy. It's odd that they're classifying Vice as a comedy. I know. I would think that would be That's a drama, even though I haven't seen it. But and also case. Green Book. Yeah, Green Book I think is definitely a drama. Maybe they're saying musical because the guy's a, a musician. Yeah, that's know. why the distinction doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but best actor in a motion picture, musical or comedy, Christian Bale, Lin-Manuel Miranda in Mary Poppins Returns, Viggo Mortensen in The Green Book, uh, Robert Redford in Old Man of the Gun. Which I still need to see. I yep. wanted to see that, and I, I didn't get a chance that. to. And John C. Riley in *Stan and Ollie*. So good for John C. Riley. Um, I for one cannot see him in anything serious. Yeah. He showed up in *Gangs of New York* when we watched it, and I was like, "Where's Will Ferrell?" Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Best actress in a supporting role in motion picture in a any. Mo- oh, here we go. Best actress in a supporting role in any motion picture: Amy Adams in *Vice*, Claire Foy in First Man*. That's his wife. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Regina King in If Beale Street Could Talk, Emma Stone and Rachel Weiss in The Favorite. I'm seriously so ready for The Favorite. I'm so excited. I'm excited for that one too. Best actor in a supporting role. Wait. Oh, so they just do supporting role overall. Okay. Best actor, best actor in a supporting role in any motion picture: Mahershala Ali in The Green Book, Timothy Chalamet in Beautiful Boy, Adam Driver in Black Klansman, Richard E. Grant in Can You Ever Forgive Me, and Sam Rockwell in Vice. Timothy Chalamet is the hot pick right there. Oh, yeah. Because he's the only shining light in that movie. It's true. But still. Uh, skip the crap I don't care about. Best director. Bradley Cooper, Stars Born. Alfonso Cuaron for Roma. Peter Farrelly for Green Book. Spike Lee for Black Klansman. Adam McKay for Vice. I am ready for Roma. Oh, yeah. Uh, but right now, out of the, I mean, I've only seen a Stars Born and Black Klansman, so Bradley Cooper would be my front runner there. Yeah. Same. Best screenplay. Roma, The Favorite. If Beale Street Could Talk. Vice and The Green Book. <laughs> I haven't seen any of them. We haven't seen it. <laughs> yep. Uh, score, A Quiet Place. Do you guys remember the score from that? Not really. I thought it was nothing. It's <laughs> kind of the point, There wasn't right? anything. <laughs> um, Isle of Dogs, Black Panther, First Man, and Mary Poppins Returns. Oddly enough, I thought the score in First Man was quite possibly the weakest aspect of it. I thought the score was really hmm. distracting. I don't really remember it. I don't really remember it either. I thought, it, I, I, it, that's just my opinion. I thought it was really, really, really distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then past that, we don't care because it's TV. But those are the general. So it seems like your your hot takes are uh, Black Panther, Black Klansman, If Bill Street Could Talk, uh, Star is Born, uh, The Favorite, Green Book popped up a lot. So 
that might be what we're looking at. Vice, Roma. That might be, uh, I think those are the ones we're going to be looking at mm-hmm. for the Oscars. Um, which is disappointing that Hereditary wasn't mentioned. Yeah. I knew Suspiria wasn't going to get mentioned, so I'm not even going to waste my time yeah. getting mad about that. Also, Annihilation was this year. Annihilation was this year. Completely so, going to be forgotten, Yeah, probably. Annihilation, well, it came out too early in the year. I know. Yeah. Such a disappointment. So so good. Annihilation and Hereditary are likely just going to be completely glossed over. Suspiria, I fully expect to be 100% forgotten, even yeah. though that is still my front runner for my favorite movie of the year. Yeah. Um, in pretty much every category. <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie so much. Um, and I can't wait to watch it again once it comes out on Blu-ray and I can make Becca watch it with me. Hmm. I guess so. She's, she's excited for it. But that's sure. it, folks. I think that's those are the the big news items, right? I think so. Whoa, is Steve Carell in Vice? Yeah. No, he's not. Yeah. Shut your mouth. No. Sorry, there's a video. <laughs> there was a little video playing in the corner of the thing that I was on. If Steve Carell is in Vice, I can I like. Holy, he plays Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> Okay, I just became somehow more ready for this movie. <laughs> because Adam McKay managed to get such an incredible performance out of Steve Carell in The Big Short mm-hmm. that, like, I'm ready for it. Holy cow. <laughs> Sam Rockwell as George W. Bush. Again, I'm just ready for it. <laughs> Please. Tyler Perry as Colin Powell. Let's just, can I go see this movie tomorrow? <laughs> Doesn't come out till Christmas. All right. Well. I think those are the topics, yeah? Yeah. I believe so. We've been going for a while, guys. 90 minutes. One of our longest episodes. Mm-hmm. But is what it is. We had fun doing it. We did. Yes, we did. <laughs> so that's all that matters. In summary, go watch Sicario. Yeah. Go watch The Revenant. Yeah. And if you want to, go watch The Wolf of Wall Street. Yes. If you have no morals. Here's the thing. You just need to be able to properly understand where it's coming from and this is i think one of the biggest um characteristics that can um kind of define a critical film watcher from somebody who just watches it for entertainment and that is the understanding that just because something is on screen does not mean that the film is endorsing that thing so while the film shows again just all of this debauchery and this crazy life that he lived it's not an endorsement of it it's something we can learn from. And I think that that's the important distinction to be made, specifically with the, with the Wolf of Wall Street, but with a lot of movies that show horrible things as well, is that just because it's on screen doesn't mean that it is an endorsement of that thing. Like I would assume they don't endorse eating live goldfish. That's correct. Or like having dwarves with Velcro on their heads and throwing them at targets. <laughs> Actual scene. <laughs> I'm watching this as soon as I get home. It's like three. It's like three hours and change. It's long. Jeez. But I think so. Remember that, folks. As you're watching a movie, if something horrible is on screen, don't assume the movie is endorsing it. Sometimes, it just is more effective to show something that makes you uncomfortable. Very well said. Yeah. Um, like the witch. It's not endorsing witchcraft. It's just telling the story. Yeah, but it's icky. It is icky. That's the whole point. <laughs> it is very icky. All right, folks. Like I said, um, we are going on a short hiatus. 
um, probably probably three weeks, I think, is what it's going to turn out to be. Yeah. Because yeah. we need to come back for the new year before the Oscars get announced. Uh, you may have one more bonus episode from us before the end of the year. Most likely you will. Um, for those of you who care, um, we three are also very interested in music, um, critics of music. We like to listen to music. So we're going to do a bonus episode discussing our top albums of the year for those of you who care about that kind of thing. Uh, but this will be the last movie-related episode of We Watch Movies and Then Talk About Them um, for 2018. So for everybody out there who has, uh, I guess, listened to us, given us a platform, um, taken interest in what we've said, um, you know, we know there's a few of you out there. We get, you know, probably 30 or so listens on each episode, which is fine because we don't do any sort of advertising. So it's really yeah, just like <laughs> if you randomly find us on iTunes. But speaking of, if you listen to our podcast and you enjoy it, um, you might not have any friends that you can recommend it to, um, but go throw us a review on iTunes if you can. Um, that'll help us get up closer to the top of the search results when people look for podcasts about movies. Um, and that's really the only way that we're going to be able to grow our base is uh, through word of mouth and through iTunes reviews. So if you like our stuff, um, and you don't know anybody who is as into movies as you are, um, but you want to help us out a little bit, um, just go drop us a review on iTunes, um, uh, and we read them as well. So we might shout you out. Who knows? Who cares? <laughs> um, if you want to get in contact with us, uh, facebook.com slash we watch movies and then talk about them or on Instagram at movies we watch. Um, we're trying to be better at being a little more active on those and we're doing a bad, bad job. Yes, we are. So part of our New Year's <laughs> resolutions are going to be to be more effective in our social media um, for the podcast. Yes. So um, I think that's it. Anything else, guys? Nope. Okay. Again, uh, seriously, and I, I hope this comes across as sincere to everybody who listens to us. We do appreciate it. We thank you again for um, finding what we say important and or entertaining and or interesting enough to give us your time. So we thank you for it. We hope you have a great holidays whatever you celebrate, a great new year, and we will see you in 2019. See ya. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.